Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible or your mobile device, I would invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 27 for our Bible study tonight. This is the second to last message that we'll have in our Messages in Matthew series, Why It Matters. Uh, I encourage you to tune in tonight and, and of course, especially next week as we get our last message. I believe that um, it's important. I think God is going to speak to you through it. So um, please do. Also, you heard Grace in the announcement say that this Sunday, if you guys want to um, come on out Sunday morning, right now the weather forecast looks great, and you want to bring a lawn chair, we're going to have speakers um, right outside the solid ground, there's that whole parking lot area there, so you can sit out in the sun. We'll set up the tent if you want to be under shade, uh, and you just want to be with us outside that way, you're welcome to come and join us and do so, and we'll also um, provide communion elements for you if you do. Um, but please be informed that that is an opportunity for you, and I hope that you can take advantage of it. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 27, and uh, again, why don't we Read our text. It's uh, starting in verse 50. We're going to read just a short passage, 50 to verse 54, and then we'll pray and we'll get into the message tonight. And so uh, Matthew 27, verse 50, this is the last moment of Jesus' life on earth. It says that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent or torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent, or the rocks tore. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things which were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you, Lord, for uh, the eternal word. We thank you that it's living and powerful. We thank you for the impact and effect that it has upon our lives. And as we consider, Lord, the impact of your death upon the cross and the resurrection of your body from the grave and what it has done for our lives, we ask right now, Lord, that our hearts would be tuned in to your voice, that our lives would be open to the flow and movement of your spirit, and that we would walk in the power that you provided through your sacrifice. So open our understanding now to the word that you want to speak to us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am personally still young enough that I can still make it through the night without getting up to use the bathroom. I know you're probably surprised, you know. But I am also old enough that I have seen the world change a few times since I was brought into it. I am still young enough that I can sort of figure out technology. It's going, but I still can. But I'm also old enough that I can remember the days of rotary dial telephones, when you would put your finger in the little hole. For those of you that are young, ask your parents, and they'll explain a rotary dial telephone to you. I am young enough that I'm still in the game of life, but I'm also old enough that I have seen a few game changers in the game of life along the way. A game changer, you guys understand it, it's really a game changer is something that comes onto the playing field in a particular game that changes the way the game is played. For instance, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick changed the game of football. It went from being all about toughness and talent to really being more tactical. They were a game changer. People had to adjust the way they played because of the way that combination of guys worked upon the field. Well, in this thing that we call life on earth, there are game changers, things that come along on the scene that change the way that we live. And I think probably there have been more game changers in terms of life in our time, our lifespan, than in any other time in human history. In my lifetime, we've seen many. For instance, the internet. 
the introduction of the internet. That was a game changer. It changed the game for the way we receive news, the way we read books, the way we take in content and do research, even the way that we recreate. The internet changed the game for all of that. Another huge one is the introduction of the smartphone. I mean, it almost seems like they've been around forever, but they're a fairly recent introduction. But they're a game changer, huge. Change the way that we do banking, even the way we do Bible reading, the way that we connect to one another and relate to one another. The, the smartphone is a game changer. Another one is Netflix. Netflix was a game changer. Right? Do you remember the days when you would go to the library or go to Blockbuster Video and you would rent VHS tapes or DVDs? Those things are of the past now. We barely use them because of the streaming service that it's provided, the way that Hollywood has changed, entertainment has changed because of Netflix. YouTube, another game changer. It changed cable television. It changed, again, news, the movement of information, the way you and I do life. How often do you find yourself searching YouTube to find out how to do things, or Google, for that matter? Another one is Amazon. Amazon is a game changer. It changed the way we do commerce and consumerism. I mean, Amazon has, for all intents and purposes, put Santa Claus out of business. I think that there is a freeze in the North Pole, but it's okay because we have Amazon and Amazon Prime. It has changed the game of life. And really, there are, are, are huge game changers and many that we have seen in our lifetime. And really, every game changer sets the stage for more and more game changers. And it seems like the game is just changing every single day that we still live. But for all of the game changers that have happened in our lifetime, there is one that happened not in our lifetime, and it is by far the greatest game changer that has ever been in the history of man. And that is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That literally changed the game in every sphere of existence and in every sector of every life, the resurrection and the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, in our passage... Matthew, the gospel writer, he records for us the immediate impact that that one event, that great game changer had upon the world. He begins in the passage by saying to us that immediately, right after Jesus yielded up the ghost, he says that the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom and that the earth did quake and the rocks Tour. He says that the graves opened, that bodies of saints that had already died and were sleeping, resting, arose, came out of their graves and into the city. And even the centurion who saw the things taking place there and felt the power of the earthquake, he was impacted by what took place. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The game was changed immediately. The impact of what Jesus did was felt right away. And the very first thing that we're told that took place is it says that the veil that was in the temple was torn in two. One piece became two pieces from top to bottom in that moment. Now you can almost read over that, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament worship service, if you're not familiar with what all those things represented, then that might not mean that much to you. But if you realize what that implies and why that happened and how supernatural it is, it's a huge game changer when you consider it to realize it. Now, in the Old Testament, first in the tabernacle when they first came out of Egypt, and then later in the temple when David and his descendant Solomon built the temple that became the official place of worship, the compound basically consisted of three different areas. There was the outer court where basically anybody could congregate and where people would gather and worship. But then there was the inner court or the holy place where only the priests and the Levites could go when it was their turn and when they were properly consecrated and prepared for their service. They could go into the inner court or the holy place. But then there was the third section, which was called the holiest of all, or for short, really, the holy of holies. And it was that inner sanctum, that deepest place in the temple, 
where the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box that was holding the law and the jar of manna and Aaron's rod that was overshadowed by the golden cherubim, that was in that room, in the Holy of Holies, and it represented the very presence of God, the intimate, personal, relational presence of God there in the temple. Now, that room, that place, God's presence was so holy and so sanctified that there was a curtain, a veil, that was hanging between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple compound that separated even the priests from being in the very presence of God. And that veil was significant. It was, according to tradition, about the thickness of a man's hand. It was 60 by 30, and I'm not sure which was wide and which was high, but I do know it took 300 priests to hang it or to move it. It was a big deal. This was not a shower curtain. This was something that it says that there were 72 different like braids and threads and cords and colors, and it was heavy and it was thick. And it represented the separation that existed between man and God. And so holy was the presence of God beyond that veil that only one man once a year was allowed to go in there. It was the high priest, and he had to be squeaky clean. Not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally. He had to be ceremonially prepared to the fullest degree, or else when he went in there, he would die. And they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he died, they didn't have to go in there after him. They could just pull him out. It was a big deal. And nobody could go into the very presence of God. Now, the whole temple was his presence. You could go into the outer court. You would feel the presence of God. If you were privileged enough to be a priest, you could go into the inner court and you would feel the presence of God. But nobody could get that close to the intimate, personal, and relational presence of God. But I want you to understand that the initial and direct impact of what Jesus did when he gave up his life on the cross is the first thing that happened is that that veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth, the veil was torn, and that became the biggest game changer in history. I want to read you a passage of scripture that explains this from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And it's actually from the NIV version, so I'd encourage you to just follow along on your screen. It says this, it says, Now the first covenant, that is the old, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That's the temple that we're talking about. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, that's the veil that we're talking about, was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that, that, uh, that had committed, they'd committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered, that is in the Old Covenant, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And, and it would continue until the time 
of the Reformation. It says that they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order or the new Reformation, speaking of the time when Christ would lay down his life upon the cross and that veil would then be torn in two. No one could go into the presence of God. The way in had not yet been made known. But when Jesus yielded up the ghost, the first thing that happened was that that veil was torn from top to bottom. The Holy Spirit by that, thus signifying that the way in is now made known. Now here's an amazing thing to realize. Is that Jesus gave up his life during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. It was a ceremonial season when the priest would do ministry in the holy place. And one of the things that he would do, you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 23, if you're so inclined to go back and and see it, and also in Leviticus chapter 2. He would go in, part of the unleavened bread ceremony, is that he would go in with grain. And Leviticus 2 said that the grain had to be mixed with salt. And that's a clue as to what the grain represents. The grain represents human lives. Okay, that's why it says in Corinthians, if a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it bides alone. But if it be raised again, it speaks of life. That's why Paul said, make sure that you are always seasoned with salt. That's your life. And so the priest would bring grain into the holy place. And on the time of unleavened bread, it says that he would heave it before the Lord. So he would take this grain and he would thrust it or heave it before the Lord, meaning that he would toss it towards the holy of holies where the presence of the Lord was. But there was a veil. And no matter how hard the priest might try to heave the grain, the grain would never pass beyond the veil. It was a representation of our best efforts, whether by priest or by ourselves, to get into the presence of God. It couldn't happen. You could be distant, you could be near, but you couldn't be in it. But when the veil tore from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, the priest would go in that very year. And when he would heave the grain, there would no longer be the restriction. And that that means that not only was the high priest now able to go in, but any common person was now able and allowed to go into the very presence of God. And this is the greatest game changer that has ever happened in the history of humanity. There are two things that took place when the veil was torn from top to bottom that changed the world forever. Number one is that man was let in to the presence of God. Man was let in to the presence of God. Now, what does this imply? If man can now go in to a place so holy that even the high priest couldn't just go in and out, but only once a year and under strict conditions. What does it mean? What does it imply? Four F words if you want to take notes tonight. Number one, it implies forgiveness had taken place. Forgiveness had taken place. The great divide that separates man from God, the reason why there was a veil in the first place, is because of sin. Now, in the beginning, you guys know the story, Adam and Eve, they were commanded by God, one act of obedience, they failed. And they brought sin upon humanity. And in that moment, there was a separation that was created between mankind and the God who made man. And thus there needed to be something that would happen that would reconcile or reinstate the relationship between man and God in order for that fellowship to be renewed and revived. Sin was a problem. Now, we were created... To be in intimate relationship with God. That's why we were made in the first place. But sin interrupted that fellowship and we are now separated from God by birth because of sin. Now God so valued the relationship that we were made for that he provided a way in himself through the person of his son to pay the penalty for sin and bridge the gap that sin created, thus making a way for you and I to be brought back into a relationship with God. He bore on the cross our sin, and thus he opened the way for us to come back into fellowship with him. And so here's what Jesus did when he gave up the ghost. 
he removed the sin issue completely. That's why the veil was torn from top to bottom, because it wasn't man's effort working in conjunction with God to restore it. He did it by himself. From heaven to earth, the way was open for man to come back into a relationship with God. And that is a game changer, because unforgiveness is the impenetrable veil that ruins relationships. I don't know if you've ever experienced that on a human-to-human level, but there's something very powerful about unforgiveness is that when there is a sin that has not been dealt with and put away, it causes separation. And that separation cannot be undone unless that issue is dealt with. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. If you have a business relationship or a friendship, or if you've been alive more than five years, then you understand what it feels like and what it means to have unforgiveness create a veil between you and someone else. And what God did is that God valued the relationship that he wanted to have with you so greatly that he dealt with the issue of the sin. Thus, you could be forgiven and the offense could be removed out of the way and it opens the door. It tears the veil to open the way for fellowship to happen. Now, it doesn't happen automatically. We'll get to that a little bit later. But forgiveness happened when the veil was torn. The second thing, because of forgiveness... It paved the way. It facilitated fellowship. That's your second word if you want to write that word down. Now, the word fellowship in the English language doesn't do justice to the concept in Scripture because fellowship in the Bible is more than just you and I being fellows and hanging out together. Fellowship in the Bible is probably a better translation would be the word communion because communion implies that two become one. And that's really what fellowship is. The word in the New Testament Greek is koinonia, and that's what it means. It means the two become one, fellowship. And that's what God desires. And what that word implies is it describes the type of relationship that God wants to have with you. He doesn't want a friend relationship with you where he walks with you. He doesn't want an external relationship where you are in each other's presence only, but he wants an internal, intimate relationship where you are literally brought into union with him and the two become one, where your thoughts are interchanging, where your emotions are interchanging, where your love is interchanging. That's the kind of fellowship that God desires and it's what God paid for when he placed his son upon the cross. Now, You can be, in Old Testament times, you can be in the presence of God if you're a descendant of Abraham. You're in Israel. You're in God's nation. You're there. If you came to Jerusalem during the feasts, you could have some form of relationship with God. You could feel his presence in the temple. You could bring your offering, and you could relate to him and worship and feel his presence in some degree, in some way. If you were privileged to be a priest, you could go into the holy place and smell the incense. There would be a greater degree of intimacy for you than for everyone else. And if you were so privileged that you could be the high priest, then once a year you could go in and actually hear God and and be with him in that intimate place of just face-to-face almost fellowship with him. But think about how exclusive that is. But the fellowship that he paid for allows the most common of human beings to be forgiven to a level where we have a greater privilege even than the consecrated high priest in Old Testament times. What does that mean? It means that because of what Jesus did on the cross, I now can boldly enter a place that before would have killed even a holy man if he had one small blighter imperfection. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says it this way. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, listen, also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Think about the privilege that you and I have to have bold access to God behind the veil because of what Jesus did. Not only is it bold, but it's continual. We can have an open conversation with God where it's free and face-to-face. We come to him, and in this fellowship, we find mercy, and we find that we're not judged by him according to the law. There's a giving and receiving of relational life and love and time as we come into his presence. There's a continual acceptance by God of us when we come into his presence. Think about the implication of that. 
I mean, do you even have that with another human being? I mean, we spend so much time and energy conforming ourselves to what we know will be acceptable to the people in our lives, hoping in some way that we're not going to be judged or looked down upon or thought ill of by those that we relate to. But we come into the presence of God, and he has so removed the sin, and he has so made himself so intimate with us that he accepts us continually right where we are. There's an acceptance. And with that acceptance, there's a responsibility because we sense his love so real in our lives that it automatically conforms us into his very same image because love is a greater motivator than fear. And thus we find acceptance in his presence. We find that when we come to him, there's coaching and fathering and imparting and there's healing and there's blessing in his presence. He, he teaches us, he leads us like a father takes his son or his daughter by the hand and he shows us things and it's continual. It's not in a temple once a year in a specific place. It's in our heart and it's always and it's constant and he's with us. He doesn't leave us. There's full disclosure in this fellowship with him where he makes all of himself known to us and he lets us know that we are fully known by him. He knows us to the very core even our thoughts. Now, sometimes that can be scary or sometimes we can almost be, feel that that's intrusive. Like, God, you know every thought. I don't know if I want you to know every thought in my life. But if you really think about it, if you're going to have a relationship on the level of the kind of relationship that God made you to have with himself, you can't have it any other way. Because if there's any distance at all, if there's anything that's undisclosed, if there's any secrets at all between you and God, then there's orbiting in the relationship. There's some distance somewhere. But that's not fellowship. That's not koinonia. And thus he gives us all of him and we open up all of ourselves to him. Warts and all, even the ugly part. And because of Jesus, God works with us in those things that even we hate about ourselves and he slowly pries them out and he changes us from the inside out. But it happens in relationship. It happens in fellowship with him. And the fellowship happens because his spirit enters into you inside. It's an internal relationship. It's fellowship. Now, because of that fellowship that we have and because of the type of relationship that it needs to be, the third thing that this impact, this game changer produces in our lives is it produces freedom. And there's a freedom we were made. The Bible says that it is for freedom that we have been set free. When the Bible talks about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it is not a redemption so that we can become slaves to a new master. He redeems us from slavery so that he can set us free. What does that mean? It means that we have been set free, first of all, from the law that held us under and held us at arm's length from God. He took the law and he separated it from us. Listen to the language of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. It says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's what you were before. You were separated from God. You were unclean. You were unholy. It says, he has quickened you together or made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. He's taken away all your sins. And here's what else he did. Listen, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that's the law, that's the rules, that's the commands. He blotted them out. His blood literally splattered all over the commandments so that they can no longer be read. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. See, part of what God did in the Old Testament is that he gave the law of holiness unto humanity so that we would come to the realization that we are separated from God and unclean. Man was so separated from God because of sin that we didn't even know we were separated from God. We didn't even know that there was a God except for that still small conscience voice inside of us saying there's got to be more than just dirt and earth. But we needed to know that we were sinners. So God gave a law that showed why we felt the frustration that we did. And that law brings us to the place where we realize that we are undone. We need to be forgiven. And when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he provide that forgiveness, but he also removed the law from being our taskmaster. And he set us free from it. We are now free from that law. There's a new law. 
It's the law of his spirit alive in my heart that teaches me what is right and gives me the power to live that righteous life. The law could never do that. The law could tell me what was right, but it couldn't produce power for me to live what was right. But his spirit in my life gives me power to do it. Not just freedom from the law, but with that freedom comes freedom from guilt. The Bible says that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no more consciousness of sin. Meaning that he is able, the law could never take away guilt, but Jesus' blood and his spirit in our lives removes guilt. He frees us from guilt. He also sets us free from something else, and this one's huge. He sets us free from appearances. Do you guys like appearances? I think the older that we get, the older that I get, the more I hate appearances. The, 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 the unspoken feeling that I have to appear to be something other than what I am. I hate that. It's the most inauthentic, it's the most frustrating and tiring thing that you could ever live through. There's an amazing passage of scripture. It's at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it goes, it's really the whole chapter, but the, 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 the thick part of it is verses 13 through 18. And it talks about Moses in the Old Testament. It talks about the appearance that he had to keep up. I mean, think about what it was like to be Moses. He was leading three million people, and all eyes were on him. And, and the Bible tells us that when Moses would go into the presence of the Lord, his face would shine because he was face-to-face with God, and light creates light. We reflect what we're in the presence of. And the light was so bright that when Moses would come down the mountain, the people would see the brightness. And Moses, it says that he put a veil over his face. And the implication is that he didn't want to stumble them. He didn't want to appear to be so close to God that it made them feel inferior. That's the implication. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that the veil that Moses put over his face was actually there for another reason. Listen to verse 13. It says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. What does that mean? It means that the light that was shining from Moses' face after he came out of the presence of God was not his own light. And thus, when he would leave the mountaintop, the light would fade. But he didn't want the children of Israel to see the fact that his face was fading. And so he allowed them to assume that that light was continually coming out of himself. It was keeping up in appearance. Do you guys know what that's like? Oh, we come to church. Praise the Lord. Oh, my kids, this is what our family always looks like. Everybody's well-dressed and neatly put together. And I always carry my Bible with me, even when I go to work. And I always talk very clear and clean. Everything that always comes out of me is light and life and peace. Right. Just like me, right? That's called prevailing Christianity. It's prevail, pre-removal of the veil. But I want you to see what God wants for you and I. It's in verse 18 of the same chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, but we all, because of this cross, because there's a game changer, with open face, no veil, no hiding, no putting on, no pretending, open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. No more veil. There's nothing keeping us from him. We can see him face to face. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Meaning that the freedom that he now affords me allows me to remove the veil of covering from in front of my face. I don't have to keep up an appearance anymore. I'm free to be me because I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And as I fellowship with him, I'm being changed from the inside out to to reflect the same image of that which is being worked in my life. And that's an amazing freedom. Now, that does not mean that I flaunt my flaws everywhere I go and I say, well, this is the authentic me, and so you better just deal with it. No, 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 no. We live in a world where there is a social contract that does exist, okay? I I do have to keep up some level of that. That's not what the Bible is talking about there, but I am free to be flawed, and you must understand the freedom that he gives us in that to do that. I'm free from appearances. I'm also free from formulas, you guys know what that is like when you, okay, well, God, if I, if, if I do this, then you'll do this. If I read 15 minutes and pray 15 minutes, then you'll, you know, the, we're free from all that. None of that exists anymore, and, and we're free. 
His spirit informs our behavior and inspires our character. We don't do tit for tat with God. He doesn't play that. You try to do formulas with God, you're going to find that his presence, his spirit is grieved quickly with that. He doesn't do it. There's freedom in relationship. It's simplicity. I shared earlier in the study that two things happened when the veil was torn. Number one was that man was let in, and that provided forgiveness, it provided fellowship, and it provided freedom. The other thing that happened when the veil was torn from top to bottom is that God was let out. And that produced number four, which is force, if you're taking notes. Did you see after the veil was torn what happened? It says that there was an earthquake And it says that the rocks tore. Now, that's amazing to think about that. It's one thing for the veil to tear, right? I mean, that's thick fabric. But it says that the rocks tore. And not only that, but so powerful was was what took place that it says that the very graves opened up and many bodies of saints that were sleeping or dead arose, walked into the city, were seen of many. That's remarkable. I mean, now... I don't want to distract from tonight's study by getting into the interpretation of all of that. There is an interpretation of that to understand exactly what you know, was going on right there and why that took place. We'll talk about that some point in the future. But what I want you to see tonight and understand is that this was such a game changer that there was a force released upon the world in the moment that that veil was torn into. God in his spirit was no longer contained within the confines and the boundaries of that holy of holies. His spirit was released out into the world, and it made a difference immediately. Now, I love the fact that it talks about the earthquake and the tearing of the rocks, because in my mind... That immediately takes me back to the days of Elijah. Remember Elijah the prophet? He was the prophet of signs and wonders. Fire coming down from heaven. I mean, amazing things happening in the the life of Elijah. And he was impressive. One of the most impressive prophets even of the whole Old Testament span because of the powerful things that happened in his life. But what Elijah had to learn, and he learned it along the way, is that the real presence of God was not found in the powerful things that happened around him. Remember when Elijah was up on the mountain, it was a low point in his life, but a high point in his physical location as he was up on the mountain, Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai, literally. And the Lord came to him there, and that's what Elijah wanted. He needed an encounter with God. He had just had the high point of his ministry, calling down fire from heaven, but now he was at a low point spiritually. And he needed God. He had power but he needed God. And he came to Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai, and God met him there. And God said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you 300 miles from where I last called you? And what, 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 what is this all about? And Elijah gives his song and dance. He says, God, I'm the only faithful one left, and no one else loves you, but I love you in this whole thing. And God said, come here a minute. I want to show you something. And tenderly, God in his grace, he took Elijah, and he put him in this little cleft of the rock, this little enclave there where he could see. And the Lord passed by, and when the presence of the Lord passed by, it says that there was an earthquake. He passed by again, and there was a fire. And he passed by again, and there was a wind, and the wind was so strong that the rocks tore. Okay, an earthquake, the tearing of the rocks. But do you know what it says about those three things? It says that God was not in it. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the tearing of the rocks. He wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in it. But then it says this concerning Elijah and God. It says, but after the fire, there was a still, small voice. It wasn't power and signs and wonders and miracles and ministry and movement and motion and hands raised and loud music. It was stillness. And for the first time ever, Elijah heard God in a way that he had never heard God before. And the Lord said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he said the same thing that he had said before that he heard in church and then on the radio, but this time it was different. It was inside. I'm amazed. I think it might be a phase. I think it's a stage that probably every Christian passes through where we almost get high on the powerful moments that God shows up in our life. There's a miracle, and he does miracles even today. He uses us in some amazing way. And and we get high on it, or we hear about a place where God is doing healings, and we run to it, and we're attracted to it, and we're moved by it. 
but it's a stage and it's a phase because what you realize is that you can chase those things down your whole life, but you find that you're always chasing something, but you're never quite finding the fullness of what you've been called to. But what God desires to do in our life is so much more than tearing rocks and earthquakes and shakings. He wants to be so present with us, so in us, so filling us, so satisfying us from within, so personal with us, that all those things become secondary. They don't really matter anymore. See, when the Spirit of the Lord moves, those things are going to happen. You could chase after signs and wonders and tearing rocks and earthquakes, and, and you might find it, but you'll never be satisfied by it. But if you allow yourself to be filled with Him, if you receive what it is that He purchased for you on the cross, and you walk in the fullness of what that means and what it represents, not only do you get God, but you'll see all the other things happen too. That's what happens here. Jesus gives up the ghost. The veil is torn. The Spirit is released. And things start to happen. And you know what happens? Resurrection. Because it says, after the resurrection... Of Jesus, it says, many of the bodies of them that slept arose, entered into the holy city, and were seen of many. And do you know what happens when the Spirit of God begins to move in your life and in mine? Dead things around us begin to resurrect. Things that have been long sleeping and dormant in our lives suddenly come back to life, and we begin to see life where there was death. Even things in us that God created that have died because of sin or because of time or because of cynicism or because of abuse or because of anything else this world has done in us. When the Spirit of God comes in, those things that were dead come back to life and we see them walking around again in the holy city in the presence of the Lord. There is a force that is released when the presence of the God or the presence of the Lord comes out and it's amazing. The centurion, it says that he watched these things he saw the earthquake and the rocks. He watched and he just, this man who had thrust a spear into the side of the Son of God and watched the blood and water flow out, he looked up and even he couldn't deny that truly this man was the Son of God. He was convinced. Fellowship happened when man came in. Force was released when God came out. Now I want you to understand something. We're drawing closer to a close here in our study tonight. I want you to understand something is that this is the greatest game changer that ever was in the history of humanity. But there's a catch. Just because the cross was completed and the veil was torn does not automatically guarantee that you will be a beneficiary of what was produced and given on that day. See, just like the Old Testament worshiper could approach by degrees, the same thing is true for you and I. You could just be in the kingdom, just like someone could be in the nation of Israel. You could be within the borders, and there would be some sense of God's presence, and you could even be a citizen. You could even be saved, and yet you've never been inside the veil. You've never really experienced his presence. There's a distance, maybe a restriction. Maybe it's because of unbelief, or maybe it's because you're afraid of what might happen if you get too close to God. Some of you have come in as far as the outer court. I think that that's a great representation of a church service. You might be a regular worshiper of God in the masses. You come and you gather and you congregate and you experience and you hear the sounds and you experience the smells and, and you're there and it's, and it's real and his presence is there. But it's still not the holy of holies. There's some that have gone even further. You've come into the holy place and you've poured oil on the lampstand and you've burned incense at the altar. It represents prayer and there is a fellowship, there's a communication, but there's still more and you know it. You've come so far, but the call and what's been purchased by Christ is not for you to come so far and come no further. But what we are bidden to do, and it is on us, is that we are to come within the veil and into the very presence of God himself. I want to read you the invitation that is given to us in the scripture. It's Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Listen to the invitation that you and I are given to come into the presence of God. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, speaking of the old system, which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts will I remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, because of the veil torn, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, let us draw near to God. Do you hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to you? Do you hear the invitation that God has given to you? He is saying, because of Jesus, because of the blood, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. The invitation has been given to you and I to not come this far and no further. But because of what Jesus did, you and I are invited into the very presence of God where there's full forgiveness, where there's communion and fellowship, where there is true freedom and where the force of God is released in our life. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the game changer that the cross produced. It is a game changer on every level of life. It changes the game for religion. Because religion is no longer necessary because religion means to relink and that's been done away. It's already done. You've been made one with God so you no longer need religion. It's a game changer for the priesthood because it's no longer necessary. You no longer need another person to help you get close to God. You are invited because of the blood of Jesus Christ to come into the presence of God yourself. He becomes the priest that relinks you and God. And so there's no more need for it. It's a game changer for your purpose because you no longer have to grope around in the dark trying to figure out why it is that you were made. But you can walk in the fullness of what he made you for because you're in communion with the one who will reveal it to you. It's a game changer for your motivation because you no longer have to drum up motivation to things that are vanity, but his spirit fills you and inspires you and moves you in the direction that he wants for your life and what will ultimately bless you. It's a game changer for the experience of your life because you no longer need a bucket list. We were talking about bucket lists tonight at our dinner, dinner conversation and you know, my son was asking, what's a bucket list? Because I said, one of the things on my bucket list is that I want to catch a salmon in Alaska and eat it right there and then. And I know that sounds weird, but that's on my bucket list. But you don't need a bucket list anymore. It's a game changer for your bucket list because you're so content in the stride that he has for your life that you're surrendered to his will completely, and that's what's satisfied. It's a game changer for dependence because you no longer need to be dependent on anybody else. You don't need someone's permission to be you. You don't need someone's permission to tell you what you can and can't do, although we understand that that, that doesn't mean we do whatever we want, but it's because we're dependent upon him, and so he informs our identity and our behavior and our life and everything that it is. It's a game changer for identity because he defines us. It's a game changer for our marriage because he defines it and he comes into it and he shows us what it is and he brings us into fellowship not only with him but with our spouse. It's a game changer for our mental health because his spirit comes into our life and he gives us power and love and a sound mind which only the Holy Spirit can give you. Nothing else can give you all three of those. You can get two out of three at best. He becomes a game changer for our health, for our contentment, for our very existence. The spirit of God us in fellowship with him, it is a game changer for all of life. But understand this, it's on you now. He paid the price. He did the work. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Will you allow your life to be shaken up? Will you allow your grave to be opened up? Will you come into the very presence of God and receive all that he has for you? Father, we thank you so much for what you provided through your son Jesus on the cross. 
We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for the release of your spirit. We thank you for the veil that was torn in two. We thank you for your friendship, your fatherhood, your nearness, and everything that you've given to us because of your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, we want to open our hearts to you tonight, and we want to approach within the veil. And so we ask you, Lord, that even now in this moment, that you would move in our hearts to draw us close to you again, that you would open our eyes to show us, Lord, where we have drawn away or where we've come so far but have gone no further. And maybe even tonight for some, Lord, if there are some listening within the sound of my voice that have never opened their heart to the biggest game changer in all of human history, that by the gentle knocking and whispering of your Holy Spirit, they might open their lives to you tonight. Lord, would you hear our prayer now as we open ourselves to you? And by way of response, if you're listening to my voice tonight and you know Jesus Christ personally, but you know that you're not walking in the fullness of his presence intimately within the veil, not receiving all that he has done for you or given to you or walking in the fullness of that relationship, I want to invite you tonight to simply approach him by faith in full assurance of faith, pleading not your merit but the blood of his son, and to simply ask him, and say, Jesus, I want more of you in my life. I want this fellowship, this koinonia, this communion. I want this freedom. Lord, would you bring me there? And maybe it even means repentance from some things that we've allowed to create distance between us and God. Maybe we're orbiting with God. We've put space between us and him. And if you've done that, I invite you tonight to ask God to bridge that gap again and that you'd come into his holy presence. And tonight, maybe you're listening to the sound of my voice and you have never come into a relationship with God. I want you to understand that what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was a love gift from God to you so that what blocked you from him could be removed out of the way. And it isn't what I'm saying to you tonight or what you'll have to do for anyone else. It is because of him and him alone and what he's done. He invites you into a relationship with himself. The veil is torn and open, and he allows you to approach by faith. And if you have never come into that relationship with him, it is as simple as speaking to him from your heart with your voice, acknowledging that you believe what he did for you, and asking him to forgive your sins and draw you into his presence. And the blood of Jesus Christ is so perfect and powerful that it will immediately forgive you of every sin you've ever committed mental, physical, emotional, towards yourself, towards someone else, stranger, or intimately. Every sin that you've ever committed will be forgiven, and you are made completely holy and righteous, even more clean than the high priest in the Old Testament. It's because of what Jesus did for you. And I invite you tonight to open your heart to Jesus. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time. And as we surrender to you in this last song of praise, we ask you, Lord, that you would do your will in each and every one of us that we might know you and walk in the fullness of what you provided. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. God bless you. Stand to your feet. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.